0: Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 40th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is intimate truths about embodying joy and pain in poetry. I'm joined by Sharon Olds, whose latest book is Arias. The publisher is Alfred A. Knopf. Sharon is the author of 12 books of poetry, including most recently Arias 2019, which was shortlisted for the 2020 Griffin Poetry Prize. Her 2012 collection, *Stag's Heap, won both the Pulitzer Prize and England's T.S. Eliot Prize. Olds is the Eric Maria Marque Professor of Creative Writing at New York University's Graduate Creative Writing Programme, where she helped to found workshop programs for residents of Kohler-Goldwater Hospital and for veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. She lives in New York City. Welcome to the show, Sharon.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Oh, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, I must say, 20 years ago or so, when your book, uh, The Living and the uh, Dead, came out, I'm actually screwing up the title. Sorry about that.
0: Don't worry, don't worry.
1: But uh, when it came out, I carried it around with me constantly. I must have reread that book. I'm going to say conservatively fifteen times.
0: Wow! Wow! Thank you.
1: Oh, absolutely. So tell us a bit about Arius, and then we will we will plunge on from there.
0: I'd be happy to. Um, Arius it follows a book called Odes, and um, the odes were, I think, maybe a little less musical. Or the arias, like in opera, were more like one person crying out in song. I think that's why I called it arias. And, um, yes, there's a middle section of arias that is in alphabetical order because when I was putting that section together, I noticed that, that um, there was one for every letter of the alphabet.
1: Cool. Uh, Yeah, I remember when you got to Q in the collection.
0: Yes, Q is the title of a poem called Q. Yeah, Um, I'm now trying to look in here and see if I can (laughs) find. Yes, it's called Q aria. Yeah.
1: So let's let's start out. This is unusual, but poetry offers us this opportunity. If you would read a poem from the collection for for listeners, I think that would be a a lovely way to have people get a sense of your voice, literally, and also uh, the collection.
0: Yes, good. I'll read the first poem in in the book of Arias. It's called "For You." In the morning, when I'm pouring the hot milk into the coffee. I put the side of my face near the convex pitcher to watch the last round drop from the spout. And it feels like being cheek to cheek with a baby. Sometimes the orb pops back up, a ball of cream balanced on a whale's watery exhale. Then I gather the tools of my craft, the cherry sounding board tray for my lap, like the writing arm of a desk, the phone, the bird book for looking up the Purple Martin. I repeat them as I seek them, so as not to forget, Tray, cell phone, Purple Martin, tray, phone, Martin, Trayvon, Martin, song was invented for you, all art was made for you, Painting, writing, was yours, our youngest, our most precious, to remind us to shield you. All was yours. All that is left on earth with your body was for you.
1: Thank you so much for that reading. What would you like to say about this particular poem? It opens the collection, it opens our interview. Um, How can you elucidate on this, if you'd like to? For, for I'm listening.
0: glad when people hear it when they can't see it, because often my eyes run forward in a poem if I'm looking at the page at the same time I'm hearing it. So this way, because it's a poem that has to do with an unfolding of an understanding via the, the words, the sounds of the words, I'm glad that, it, that it's on the radio.
1: Great, the you know when I started this is the first poem in the collection. And I started reading it and immediately you know reading uh, the dead and the living came back to me because you have and I don't know if I'm the only one who's commenting on this. I'd be very surprised if I am. Your line breaks are are very unusual, shall I say, um, including the one you just had. I mean the the second line breaks between the words my and face, um, and it goes on from there. Uh, you said it one. Point. In one of your other poems, uh, you said that uh, uh, suddenly I see I do write poems in sentences. That's in the poem uh, "Sex with Love," I believe. How do you how do you work your your line breaks? I don't want to spend all of this interview on prosody matters, but it is. I, I'm going to maybe make a couple of observations later on, which are maybe valid or not valid. But I'm really curious about how you innately come to the line breaks you do and how your poems flow forward on the page.
0: Yes, I I I love the enjambment. I love a line that goes over into the next line. I love this feeling of it. I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened, but it felt right. I like the momentum of it partly because I grew up with uh, singing Christian hymns that had rhymes at the ends of lines and the lines were very end stopped with those uh rhymes that were not usually very interesting rhymes. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and so I I I found that as I began really writing my own stuff that um the lines uh liked to not stop with a rhyme at the end. And so um yeah, it was to avoid the fact that my model was four beat lines from
1: hymns. Huh, that, that's fascinating, quite honestly, because there is this, this, this movement, this, this upheaval that's going on for me, and the way you break the lines just compels me through the poem. To me, it's so oh, cool. much your voice, but I never knew that autobiographical detail to potentially help explain it, because the same year that I was carrying around the dead and the living and rereading it, I was also reading Charles Wright's book, "The Other Side of the River," oh. uh, and it, you know it's a much more languid rhythm to it, and a lot of in-stopped lines, and completely different sensibility to the poetry in many ways, uh, although very sensual as well. Um, but the contrast was 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 striking.
0: Well, I'm honored to have been read um, together with him. What a magnificent poet!
1: Yes, he he is. So speaking of poetry, I don't want to go to the hackney question about which poets influenced you, and I will uh, have a different question here in a moment. But I wanted to tell you, just to see what your response is to some of the, the poets or writers that um, you do evoke for me, and that I love not saying that you're influenced by them, that I see them in your poetry. I think your poetry is very unique and stands on its own merits entirely. Uh, But I do, when I read you, some of the poets that come back to my mind, Um, and there's a question in here somewhere, I promise you, Uh, one is, of course, certainly Emily Dickinson, just because of how many ounces of, ounce for ounce, how many surprises you pack into a poem just as she does. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorites is her poem, The Bustle in a House Morning After Death, if you happen to know that one. Uh, I also think of Philip Larkin when I read your poetry. Mm -hmm including, of course, the very famous opening line from This Be the Verse, uh, they fuck you up, your mom and dad, that they did not mean to, and so on and so forth. Uh, There's the poem Neutral Tones by Thomas Hardy about lovers who are meeting for kind of a post-mortem. You might remember there's a devastating line in that poem about the smile on your face was the deadest thing with strength enough to die. Uh, I also think of Pablo Neruda's love poems and then finally, I don't know if you know the singer-songwriter Lucinda Williams, but to my mind, uh, you remind me of her because she takes chances, she's daring, she's intimate, she's earnest, uh, she's surprising, um, she's a delight, and you are a delight. So I don't know if any of those poets are ones that you have an affinity for, but that is my question. Which poets, and I know it could change even by the day or the hour, or certain poems by them, but are there some poets out there that you – think you have a great affinity for that uh, you've just, you go back to maybe time and again that you enjoy and see as good landmarks for where you're going with your poetry.
0: Well, um, the honor that I feel for our beloved art and for those who have written in it is so large. I don't tend to think of myself in the same breath as others but I certainly, uh, Whitman and Dickinson are are certainly very important and those poets you mentioned. And then I guess there's a, a special sense of connection with um, Gwendolyn Brooks and Ruth Stone and Muriel Rookheiser and um, Stanley Kunitz. Those are uh, poets that I... Um, I I wish I I like to mention in order to honor their pioneering spirit.
1: And in that pioneering spirit, what what is just to help out listeners? What would you say who may not be familiar with their poetry? What what do you particularly admire about it? What did it maybe teach you or inspire you by?
0: Well, they're they're all th- those four women I mentioned of the, of that age, like about twenty years older than I am. They're, they're, they were very original for their time, very surprising, um, very independent, and um, political. They talked about the world as well as uh, things closer to hand.
1: Okay. Um, another thing I wanted to go to besides your, your enjambment and the way you work the line breaks is – you are so powerful with the close of your poems. I mean, there are so many poems that just leave me stunned almost by the the last line of the poetry. And I'll I'll say that of, just to give you one example here, uh, the poem, I cannot say I did not, which ends, but I think that love may be the means, what we ask with. Uh, That just, that really left me suspended in the most delightful way. How is it that you... Conclude a poem. Know that the poem is done. Work a poem. Uh, how do I mean? It's impossible almost to answer the question. But uh, anything you can you can offer regarding how you bring a poem to conclusion or realize the poem is indeed done or this has happened for you. This line that makes it the last line of the poem.
0: Yes. Well, I I think I well first I should say, Dan, that I write a lot, and most of what I write, no one ever sees. Because I write uh, very unevenly, and some poems, just many poems I write, are are not good enough to go out into the world. If a poem does not find an ending, which is enough of a distance from its beginning, I might not even type it up. I think in that poem, um, I was concentrating and thinking about the theme of the poem. And uh, the ending surprised me. I hadn't thought uh, that I was going there. I never know where I'm going. And it surprised me, and I liked it. So I kept it.
1: Sure. Well, I love that answer, because I must say, for years I wrote poetry, and my kind of my rule of thumb was if I came out of the poem knowing what I knew coming into it, then it likely was not a good poem.
0: (laughs) Right, right. Yes.
1: There, there There had to be some discovery, some surprise for me. Um as well.
0: And it's musical also. It's important to me that the poem feels over when it's over in that satisfying way like the end of a piece of music.
1: And are there any tricks of the trade in terms of rhythm, images, or there anything there that helps you know you've got that right kind of feel or resolution to it?
0: Oh, no. I, I don't know what I'm doing, but <laughs> if I do it, and I guess it has to do – I have some principles like I want to be accurate rather than just use any old word. But I think like all artists feel that way. So the the wish to be um, accurate, yeah.
1: Okay. So uh, going back kind of in the spirit of the dead and the living, but very much with what you wrote here in Arias, um, I wanted to move to some things that sort are of a bit more autobiographical, but not in a way to overshadow the poetry itself and to the extent you're you're willing to share with us, that's great. If we need to move on to another question, I will respect that, of course, as well. So so one thing is is the role of your your father as it appears in the poetry, and you can reference or even read parts of any poems you you want to from this collection to help us with that. But you mentioned for one thing, which was rather striking you being a celebrated poet, that your father was, I guess I would term it semi-literate. I'm thinking of a term where you, one point in a poem, my father's whiteness, you say, proud he could not read, um, and you talk about block lettering and so forth. Um, so it's striking that you would be, you know, a very articulate poet um, with a father who, you know, seems to have been in a different vein. Anything you might say about that and how you worked against that legacy? Is that also something different than, you know, these, these uh, poems in the hymnal?
0: i mean happy to talk about that. And I have been talking about the whole theme of the connection between uh, real life and art uh, all the time I've been writing. Um, the answer that I have given um, is that I took a vow very early on not to talk about my personal life. I think it's... Uh, hard enough for, for a family to have a poet in it, much better <laughs> a family poet in it yeah. um, without also uh, having their uh, actual selves discussed. So I never said whether or not my work was autobiographical. Um, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, lines and rhymes and things and I felt partly it might have been a uh, 40 years ago that it was that I was a woman writer uh, that I was asked more then, but I'm glad you asked it now, Dan, so I can say um, it just didn't seem like what I wanted to talk about, though all each of us as a writer, I think we notice that there are subjects that bring out our better writing. And I, and I think family subjects have uh, been that way for me. Yeah,
1: no, I think Gene O'Neill, you know, didn't uh, allow Long Day's journey into a night to uh, be released until after his death uh, because he had turned to writing that which he knew best, uh, which is his own family and, you know, their issues as it might be. Um, is there a, a poem or two here in the collection that uh, references, you know, the, I'll, I'll call it, moving away from the autobiographical, uh, a father figure in the poetry uh, that has some themes or some insights that you would particularly like to share with with listeners? Just want well, to tee up that angle.
0: I'm not going to be reading uh, except one more poem. Okay. Um, I don't think, I mean, um, if anyone is interested in poems about parents, uh, whether they're autobiographical or not, um my book the father is a book of um how do i put it uh poems about the death of a father from the point of view of a daughter that's just how i talk about it i'm i'm trying to stay away um from the whole question of you know whether the realism is autobiographical or not but then if i'm if I'm in a class of young writers, then I will say to them, I think it's pretty obvious whether my poems are autobiographical or not. And then I might wink so that they aren't being held aside from any fact that might be useful to them in their own writing lives.
1: Okay, that's that's fair enough. Let's switch over to the the mother figure that appears in in many of the poems here in Arius, even more so than than the father. Um, There seems, I mean, the details that are offered um, in the poetry. uh, There is a reference to um, the last time she tried to beat me. Uh, There is also, you know, saying uh, in a different poem where she is now. she did the best she she could against the odds. I'm slightly paraphrasing the close of the poem. But um, speaking from a a level of emotional intelligence as a, as a poet, as a writer, um, how does one move through, uh, and this, this subject is, you know, this particular episode is called both uh, joy and pain uh, in poetry. Uh, How do you find the, um, I, I guess the, the, Emotionally, are there certain emotions you think you're drawn to? There are certain dynamics you're trying to work through in your poetry. Uh, I guess that's the way I'd I'd phrase the question.
0: Well, I think, again, what, what an artist wants to do is make something that might be of some value to someone else. And, um, some of us find that writing with more apparent personalness um, engages us in, in in a way that we might write something that we um, want to send out into the world and that we believe in enough to send out into the world. So I don't know how or why I do what I do. I don't know that about the Younger writers whom I work with at New York University, um, but when we're looking at each other's poems, we can tell each other the parts that we like the most and that we yep. find most successful. Yeah,
1: the ones that resonate, the passages, the whole poems.
0: Well, I, I mean, I must say,
1: for for me, your poems resonate tremendously, and I think it's partly the it's the, the chances you take, the the earnestness. Uh, the the openness. I mean, I'll go to another poem that I, I like very much from this collection, Hyacinth Aria, and it closes something like, "And for a moment, I loved my mother. She was my first chance, my last chance, to love the human." You may not that 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 ending may also have surprised you in the act of writing it. Uh, in retrospect, uh, is there anything you might like to say about the close of that poem?
0: I think that ending did surprise me, actually. I don't hold my poems in my mind. So at the moment, I'm thumbing through trying to find the poem so that I could answer a question about it. But I yes, I think that, well, you know, often we know things we don't know we know, and they might come out in the end of a poem, and sometimes we'll make a statement, and then to make it truer, all we need to do is... Absurd not. I mean sometimes I think I I sometimes I say things that are the opposite of what turns out to have more of a feeling of truth to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but again, Dan, I don't I don't believe that as poets we need to know what we're doing. We need to do it. And then after we've done it, we have judgments to make and we have friends to help us make those judgments about what we want to send out into the world.
1: Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. The um, I'm not a poet of your stature, but I certainly wrote poetry back in the day. And the best poem I ever wrote, I, I came across it one night in my, my notebook, and it was a part of a longer poem, and I actually threw away most of the poems. It wasn't very good, but there was one passage that I said, this is pretty good, and I think it was the best thing I ever wrote, and I don't remember Ooh. writing a word of it.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: but that's just how it happened, and uh, I was happy for the gift, shall we say?
0: Yes, yes, I know what you mean. I do. So so let's let's.
1: um, There's also some rarely moving poems here about uh, relationships ending, you know, romantic, uh, sexual relationships. Um, There's a line that I I found amusing and poignant both uh, about former lovers who had met, and uh, there's a line. That there'd be a hug, like a child embracing a tree. Um, you want to talk about the use of imagery or similes in your your poetry, and what is, if there's certain things you're you're drawn to? I certainly noticed uh, nature, uh, flowers, among other things. But what what might you like to offer there?
0: Yes. Um. Well, I think. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Charles B., uh, Reznik- Reznikoff, who used virtually no symbolic language. Um, and so to some poets, it happens a lot. It certainly happens to me. Um, I don't know how to do it. I don't pause and think, hmm, what would be a good metaphor <laughs> here? It's just the way my mind works. My mind um, but sees likenesses between things and um so that's that's what comes into the that's what comes into the poems. I used to have a conversation with Galway Cannell about metaphor and simile and Galway's opinion was um, that metaphor has a profound truth in it and that similes aren't really that accurate that nothing really is that much like anything else, but sometimes, uh, perhaps in a mysterious spiritual way, something will be something else. So I right away thought, too bad I use similes and not metaphors, (laughs) like kind of second class. But he wasn't really trying to say that. That was just his opinion. And later I realized that, uh, yeah, it's not a matter of my opinion that I prefer similes, They are just the way my brain works.
1: And and speaking of how the brain works for a poet, uh, particularly an accomplished poet like yourself, the the role of memory. I mean, these are poems that are looking back um, quite some time, often. And do you see that... um, you know, you, you believe you're concerned or interested in being faithful to the moment? Is it about rediscovering the past? Is it about shedding the past in terms of what I can share light for the future? What kind of journey do you think you're making as you go back in the past but are writing in the moment?
0: I guess partly I would like to come out of ignorance into some better sense of what actually, um, what is true. I was raised with a a sort of hellfire religion so there was a lot of um supposed information i was taught that turned out uh, i believe not to be true so to just have any sense of what's actually going on ever <laughs> in a life is is welcome and then of course with love poems you we are moved to praise the beloved of whatever kind of belovedness so I think that's certainly a, a lot of a lot of one's desire to go toward a poem, including its formal aspects um, of one kind or another, and and praise those uh, whom we want to honor.
1: And, and how did you become a, a poet? I mean, how how did you devote yourself to this? I mean, were there certain epiphanies moments where you realized this was going to be? your vocation. um, how, How did that early journey happen?
0: Well, I think probably the most important thing is that before I was born, I was interested in the sounds around me. I was interested in stomach gurgles and in breath and in heartbeat. And then once I was born, I was interested in those things out in the world and in music and in dancing. And um, and then when I was maybe twenty, I was writing fiction as well as poetry, but um, uh, the my 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 fiction was even worse than my poetry. I think I can put it that way. And then also when I read the work of uh, Joyce Carol Oates, her book of stories, that was what I would have wanted to write, and I realized. She was already doing it. And so poetry um, is where I uh, kept going.
1: Well, I, I for one, am glad you kept going with the poetry. Nothing against whatever fiction you might have written uh, down the line. But uh, um, it's it's been a wonderful gift. Before we get to the close, I want to give you an opportunity to read uh, another poem from the collection.
0: Thank you. I'm very happy to, especially because there you are in Palm Springs. And this poem is called Aria Conceived in Mexico. Our first child was my first contact with the other world, which had been all along this world, inside myself. Our child used to not exist, ever, and then over sand, under coastal trees, near breakers. She came into being, came out of the world of nothing, the world before time, before death, into the world of time and death and love in a country of poetry and courage, of guarded riches and unguarded poverty. On a beach in the Republic of Mexico, she entered this dimension there. We did not know who she was, but slowly I learned motherhood. It was her life now, not mine. I'd been an envelope, and now was a living basket for the civil, holy, the new life. And the milk arrived hard in what had been my breasts, and now were for her. And the other world sent out through them food of this world for her, and she slept. And the smallest motion of eyelash or hand was the meaning of my life. I would kneel at the bars of the old cradle and listened for spider sight and warbler pant and lobos moan. And the other world had sent in with her, her means of continuance, the tiny fresh eggs in her first breath sighed. Through her children, her life would continue. And maybe if we do not destroy the earth, it too might continue the whole life of the human in Bahia Sur and Merida and Islas del Mujeres.
1: I'm so glad you chose that poem. That's one of my favorite from the collection, actually.
0: Oh, thank you, Dan.
1: Oh, absolutely. So uh, for everybody, this has been the 40th episode of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, my esteemed guest, Sharon Olds, her latest book, Arias, uh, the subject of this podcast was intimate truths about embodying joy and pain in poetry. You can find other information about this episode by going to my latest blog posting at httpsemotionswizard.com. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes in the series, you can go to my company's website, at the three W's, sensorylogic.com. <clears throat> Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In light of today's topic, here's a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald's first published novel, This Side of Paradise. Of two of the characters in that novel, he writes, they slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. <laughs>